great stories from amazing people. Conversations from the Marsh at Podcast Alley. This is Sports and More with Dean Millard. No, I did the 81, 84, 87, 91 World Cup in 96. Did the 2004 World Cup, which really wasn't very good. Um, but of, of, of those international competitions that I was at, you know, like live, um, the 87 for sure had the most uh, drama. And, and I think that that's the, the consensus of anyone that was around during that period of time that, uh, you know, that was the height of that, uh, of that Soviet team. They were exceptional. Um, you know, they played, it was like a ballet, right? The, the choreography on the ice was, was wonderful to watch. Um, you know, the grit of the Canadians, uh, the skill, you know, the, the way Gretzky played game two, uh, you know, Lemieux, you know, like Mario wasn't Mario at that point. You know, Mario Lemieux was still, you know, a young player coming through the ranks, learning how to win. And, you know, that hadn't won anything at that point yet. Uh, after turning pro with Pittsburgh. And, and, you know, I think he would tell you after the fact that, you know, he learned a lot about about winning and competing and what it takes to win from his experience in that series. That was the voice of Eric Dehachek from The Athletic speaking about the 87 Canada Cup. Hello there. Welcome to Sports and More, episode 45. Almost anything goes. For the most part, we stay away from politics and religion, but everything else is up for grabs, and uh, I'm really excited about this conversation uh, that I had with Eric Dehachek today. Uh, it was so fun. Um, we talked about uh, the future of the NHL season this year. We went back in time, revisited the 87 Canada Cup. We chatted about Mike Gartner, really interesting article and, and piece that he has at The Athletic about Mike Gardner, who basically, you know, he only had uh, 30 goals, 17 straight seasons with one eye. Yeah, if you haven't read it, uh, you'll want to check it out. It is absolutely amazing. And, you know, that led us into uh, Ken Ovechkin, who will likely pass Mike Gartner. Well, he will for sure in the next, uh, whenever they start playing again, can he catch Wayne Gretzky? And, of course, uh, Eric being in Calgary, we chatted about the Battle of Alberta then and now. Uh, obviously, the sports media landscape has uh, changed over his time and mine, and uh, he's a big music guy, so am I, so... Uh, we geeked out on some music. So all of that uh, still to come. Uh, but but just before we get to that conversation, the, the 87 Canada Cup that was just on, it's still being replayed. Uh, I'm, I'm watching uh, the Game 3 just wrapped up uh, right now on uh, TSN. Uh, but it's amazing when you watch those, just those particularly three games in the final. But even if you look at the entire tournament in 87, for me, that's the best Canadian team um, uh, accomplished. You know, that's my heyday. So people could argue 72. Some could argue 2010. Some could say 2002. Uh, whatever. It's all personal choice. But for me, that was the best. It was the best hockey. But Canada trailed in seven of nine games. And easily, in game two, without Grant Fuhrer's heroics, uh, when they went to double overtime, could have lost that series in a sweep. And trailed 3 nothing in game three. I mean... You had the best players in the world, so you you thought maybe there there could there was a good chance of a comeback, and you know all three games going six five six five six five one to double overtime, the iconic goal Gretzky to Lemieux with Larry Murphy as the decoy and Dale Howarchuk winning the draw, uh, Gretzky nor Lemieux wanted to take that draw, so Howarchuk won it. Uh, you know, little hook in the uh, neutral zone to give Mario some more space, and the rest is history. 
so the 87 Canada Cup is absolutely, in my opinion, the best hockey ever played, especially three games. Like if you, you remember that Summit Series in 72, Canada was blown out in a couple of games. So this to me was the best and I absolutely loved watching it. Uh, you know, Sportsnet was showing uh, the 87 Cup Final, Game 7, Oilers Flyers, where there was, you know, line brawls in Game 7. And, and it's so amazing as Eric and I talk about Ron Hextel was coming off the Conn Smythe. Grant Fear was coming off the go- uh, the Stanley Cup. They both were members of Team Canada. Fear played every second of that uh, tournament. So good conversation coming up with Eric Dehachek. Uh I'm really looking forward to you uh, learning a lot, I would think, especially for the younger generation about some of the greatest hockey of all time. Um, the last uh, time I had a show, uh, I gave a bit of a tribute to my Aunt Margaret, who unfortunately... Uh, passed away in uh, recent weeks um and unfortunately um her daughter also my my first cousin passed away recently so uh I, i've decided to actually start a weekly tribute on this show um you know it's not always going to be about my family members who have unfortunately passed away it will be able to way to tribute to anything uh, pay tribute to anyone anything um some lighter than others uh so yeah i'm gonna do it today with my cousin kim warren who was my first cousin and passed uh, recently just a short time after her mother uh, my aunt passed away but like her mother kim had uh such an infectious laugh should have probably been a stand-up comedian i mean she was funny and sharp as attack with a comeback. She would have her comeback ready before you finished your insult if you were trying to insult her, which I would never have advised anybody to do. Um, not an argument I would want to try and win with my uh, my cousin Kim. So she was funny, smart, uh, gone way too soon, and uh, certainly thinking of her uh, sister Peggy, uh, her brothers Corey and James right now, uh, especially to that family. So uh, that's the weekly tribute. Um We'll get all kinds of them. If you want to nominate somebody, uh, hit me up, sportsandmorepod at gmail.com. All right, as for the show, our top three brought to you by the ultimate franchise, Fantasy Sports. You know fantasy sports are fun, and when you know that's one of the things we miss right now so much about what's going on. But with UFFS, it is more realistic than ever. Uh, there's only 31 teams, and there's only a handful. I think last I heard, only five teams are still available for you to purchase. You get 23-man rosters, a 20-player, 20 27-player reserve list that you can stockpile for the future. And they also have this amazing scouting program that they are launching right away, where if you're not an owner, you can be a scout and you can uh, you know, list players that are coming up and then uh, sell them to franchises. I mean, like this is these are not players. These are digital assets that you use digital currency to buy and sell with. Build a championship team, make some money. Uh, grow your franchise and like i said just a few left here's how you get one you head to this website you got a pen that's great if not scroll back after you grab your pen it's www.airauctioneer.com slash uff sports dash nhl dash fantasy dash franchise dash auction you open your free account you make your bid you'll be notified if you are outbid so in this format, you own the game, so get in the game at uffsports.com. So our top three topic today, unbreakable records. I want to know what your top three unbreakable records in sports are. My honorable mention uh, goes to Ray Ferraro, who scored 108 goals with the Brandon Wheat Kings uh, in the mid-80s. 
just ridiculous. Like the Wheat Kings have had some good teams. Strangely, have never won a Memorial Cup. You know, the uh, uh, prop at Allison uh, uh, time uh, with the Brandon Wheat Kings in uh, 1979, some of the best uh, players ever. Anyway, Ray, Ray Ferraro, 108 goals uh, with the Wheat Kings. I don't think that's ever happening for sure. Uh, for th- number three for me, I'm going Ted Williams hitting 406. I almost went DiMaggio's 56 game hitting streak, but for DiMaggio's 56, as as hard as that is, you only have to do it for 57 games to break that. You want to hit 400, you want to hit 406. Ted Williams, the last guy to do that in 1941, you got to do it all season. And amazingly, Ted Williams lost out to DiMaggio that year when it came to the MVP voting. And if you look at Ted Williams' numbers, they're actually better than Joe DiMaggio. Strange. So anyway, I don't think uh, I don't think anybody's hitting 400 again. Uh, number two for me, uh, Wayne Gretzky, 92 goals in a season. Sorry, no chance, no chance. Anybody's unless the game drastically changes. Uh, there's no chance. And f- and for me, the number one record is Glenn Hall, 502 straight starts. I mean, that is more impressive than what Ripken did. He was playing a different position, a lot of it without a mask. I mean, it's just ridiculous to even think that, uh, you know, that, that there's that, that record doesn't have a chance at being broken because goaltending is just so different nowadays in the way they play. 500, I just can't even, I can't even believe I'm saying that that record actually happens. So love to hear from you uh, about what you think is an unbreakable record. You can hit me up on Twitter, at Duck Millard. And uh, a few uh, people have chimed in already with some good ones. Uh, Sean O'Connor says, Oars plus minus 124 in the 70-71 season. That's pretty impressive. Uh, Brent uh, Redlinski, Ricky Henderson, single season and career stolen base records. Nobody touches those the way the game is played now. Like You'd have to be like going 70 stolen bases a year uh, to catch Ricky. Uh, Jason Bazell says Gretzky has a couple Nolan Ryan, no hitters. He's got seven and Nicholas majors. That's going to be hard as well with the 18 majors. Uh, Corey Parksey, 1867 says Cal Ripken, Glenn Hall, and either Gretzky's 50 and 39 or 215 points. Like we could have done this whole list on Gretzky records. That'll never be broken. And then, uh, Casey Austin says Ferraro's 108 goals with the Wheat Kings in 83-84. And uh, I replied that he was reading my mind because that's what I was going with. So hit me up on Twitter, at Duck Millard. Tell me what your top three most unbreakable records, team, player, single season, career, whatever, any record you don't think will be broken. Hit me up on Twitter, at Duck Millard, and get more information and get in the game where you own the game with Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports at www.uffsports.com. And at Podcast Alley, we'll have one-timers with Eric DeHatchik a little bit later on in the week. Uh, For the Prospects Baseball Show, uh, we have Nick Salahub, uh, who is the head coach of the Vancouver Island University Mariners baseball team. We also played Pepper. That'll be coming out later in the week. But that full interview and episode is up at at, uh, podcastalley.ca. And uh, the Cannabis 101 podcast will have Jerry Tizenbaum and one-hitters a little bit later in the the week. Uh, We'll be talking about uh, some vaping techniques. So you can check that all out at podcastalley.ca. Right now, let's get to know our guest, Eric Dehatchek, just a little bit more with the bio. (laughs) 
time for the bio. Eric DeHatchik was born and raised in Toronto, Ontario. He graduated from Western University's journalism program and moved to Calgary in 1978, working for the Albertan. He was covering downhill skiing, the AJHL, and the Canadian Olympic hockey team, which led him to Lake Placid and the iconic moment of covering the miracle on ice. He started covering the Flames in 1980 for the Calgary Herald, joined Hockey Night in Canada's hot stove during the intermissions in the mid-90s, and then the Globe and Mail in 2000 as a columnist. In 2001, he received the Elmer Ferguson Memorial Award, elected to the Hockey Hall of Fame's media wing. He was a committee member for 15 years, and in 2017, joined The Athletic, where he's currently writing. Eric, it is uh, great to chat with you uh, during this uh, strange time. Uh, I've been a, a fan of uh, your writing and your time on Hockey Night in Canada for a long time. So it's great to have you on the show. Uh, how, how are things for you right now? Uh, I know you guys are still busy pumping things out at The Athletic, but how is life in general? Well, it, 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 that's a great question because because what I what I have been telling people is that, that my particular life hasn't changed all that much, right? So you know, like I, you know, over the sort of arc of, of my career, I've done lots of different things in, in the sports writing field, you know, covering games, uh, writing columns. But when I joined The Athletic in 2017, a, a lot of what I do are like weekly notebooks, which run on Friday, and then, and then you know, deep dive features. So, um, you know, the, the appealing part of leaving the Globe and Mail to join The Athletic was promise that, you know, James Myrtle, the, the editor-in-chief, made was, you know, we, we can do the sort of journalism that you like to do at The Athletic that newspapers are no longer doing. And that was really the tipping point, uh, which um, convinced me to, to leave that job. And, uh, and and as a result, I mean, it hasn't changed that much. Like the type of, of work that I was doing before the pandemic strike is not that different than, than the type of work that I'm doing right now. I mean, you know, I, we're a little bit more organized into themes at The Athletic. Like, for example, this week we're doing... Uh, we're doing catching up with, you know, so that's more of that, uh, you know, that old Sports Illustrated, where are they now kind of thing that was always popular. I loved that when I was a kid growing up. And um, so, yeah, this, so for example, this week, you know, it gave me an opportunity to, to call Mike Gartner. Uh, we had a great conversation. You know, it was a fun story to write. I've, I've spoken to Paul Correa this week, you know, just saying, you know, a whole bunch of people. It gives you an excuse to sort of dip into your Rolodex and, and reconnect with people that you've crossed paths with over the, over the years and, and, you know, tell people what they're doing. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, we've done sports movies. And so, you know, like that gave me a chance to talk to, you know, to Jim Playfair's son, Dylan, and, mm-hmm. and you know, he's in, in a new hockey movie that's, you know, hopefully coming out anytime, sometime soon. And Howard Baldwin, the former owner of the, the Hartford Whalers is producing the thing. So it gives me a chance to get caught up with Howard. So so all these people that I've crossed paths with in the in the past, I'm talking with them on the phone, but I would probably be doing that. Well, it's hard to say. We'd be in the playoffs now, so probably <laughs> the, the focus would be, would be more on games. But because there are no games, I, I'm just doing more of, of, of what I normally do, and, and it hasn't been too bad. I, I know that for some of our people, we have a lot of people that are very experienced in terms of breaking down analytics, not something that's my strong suit. It's hard to do analytics. When there are no, when there's no data, no new data to break down, so that's a bit challenging. And and you know, and people who you know go to the rink every day and, and interview players and talk to coaches, it's harder for them. But but if you know, if, if you're just trying to write longer features and and and, and you know more analytical 
type of work hasn't changed that much for me to be brutally honest. <laughs> well, I want to talk about that Mike Gartner story that you that you have right now uh, at the Athletic in a second, but let, let's um I guess maybe um hypothesize on, on what might happen if anything uh for this current NHL season that we are still in. Um you know, baseball is uh, apparently this proposal from the owners to the to the players association is going forward about an 80 game season. That's a little bit different because you know, everybody's hoping by, you know, the 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 baseball playoffs that we're going to have a, a handle on this or not. Hockey still has to finish a season and then start a season. What's your thought process on if we see a Stanley Cup handed out this summer? Yeah. Well, so to me, I'd like to make the distinction between what I think might happen and what should happen, because I really do believe that, I mean, it's, it's such a complicated time. You know, everybody, you, you talk to, whoever you talk to, in the industry right now, the, the hardest part is, is just not knowing, you know, it, it's the uncertainty of, you know, like going forward, you know, when's the draft going to be, you know, uh, you know, are we going to have a completion of the regular season? If so, will it involve a handful of games? Will there be a 2014 tournament, a 20 team tournament, a 16 team tournament, if they skip the regular season and, and go straight to the playoffs? What I believe, honestly believe that they should, they should, postpone everything until the final week of August. And if it were up to me, you would bring back the 16 teams only, the top 16 teams based on, on percentage as of this date, and put those teams in a playoff. And so, you know, the, all of the things that you've been talking about in terms of, you know, putting teams in a pot, like Edmonton would be a great place to have a pot if, if this plan goes forward. And you play two months of NHL playoffs in September and October. And I think you can do it in, in seven weeks because, you don't have to worry about building availability. You won't have to worry about TV conflicts. You can you can schedule in it uh, without the distraction of, of the real world like you normally do. And so then, you know, by the time you get to the you know, third week of, of October, you can award a Stanley Cup, and then you give everybody a month off, and then you bring everyone back on the 22nd of November and start the, the new season then and play 70 games, and then you're done the 2021 series season by the end of June. So that's what I think should happen. And then, you know, there's lots of complications to it, but, but there, there are manageable complications, assuming that, you know, they, they somehow, you know, sort of get the virus under control uh, and at least make it safe enough so that the teams can play in, in empty arenas. I think you could do that. I, I, I am not a big fan of hockey in summer. I, I, I know that that's what they want to do. I know that ideally they would like to get playoffs in, in, in July and, and August. I think partly it's because they feel that, that they're not really competing against very much. You know, baseball, yes, but otherwise, you know, you don't have to worry about uh, golf majors, uh, you know, tennis majors. Uh, the NFL hasn't started. You know, the sporting landscape could get awfully crowded in in, uh, in in the fall, and and sometimes when the NHL has to compete against the other major professional team sports in North America or some of the other big individual sports, you know, the ratings aren't that good. But I, I, it, I, I, I don't want to see hockey again until it's hockey season. And I know that that probably sounds a little bit idealistic and, and sounds maybe like, like someone who's a purist, but, but I, I, I don't like hockey in July and, uh, and August. Uh, you know, I remember you know, we see exhibition games for the Canada Cup and I don't like it, you know, and, and I'm not a big fan actually of hockey in the third week of June, but I think most of us have gotten used to it. Mm -hmm. um, but, but, I, but to me, I, that's where I would draw the line. Um, how do you feel about it? Like, I, 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 hockey is a winter sport, you know. Yeah. Like all those other sports have an outdoor, like, like even basketball it has an outdoor 
recreational tradition. Baseball is an outdoor sport. Football is an outdoor sport. Hockey isn't, you know, like, we, you know, I mean, other than, you know, playing on the pond and, you know, some, but it's a winter sport and it should be played in at least the, the approach of winter. So that's, that's, that's my take on it. And I know that there are lots of people in the industry who agree with me. I just don't think that the commissioner is one of them. Yeah. I think uh, at this point, I'll take hockey at any point. <laughs> I'm, you know, I'm, I'm running, uh, as we're speaking, I'm watching game one of the 88 cup final and game two of the Canada cup 87 final. Right. And I'm running out of these things. I've watched so many old baseball games. Um, I'm, I'm So I'll take hockey pretty much at any point. Um, I'm just concerned that like, I, like, I don't understand how it works. Um, if, if, you know, if you're using Edmonton as an example, well, here in Alberta, you know, there's a limit on how many people you can get into a sure. building. Two hockey teams yep. is over that limit. So I don't know. I don't yeah. know how they expect to do this. And then if one player tests positive by the, mm-hmm. the rule of the law, every, you know, all the people in, in, in close contact have to be quarantined. Well, that puts a, you know, pretty much all those teams into quarantine. So I, I don't know how yeah, logistically I'm- they do it, even if one player uh, tests positive. So if it's me, I just write the season off and just start a full season in September and and it's unfortunate but I just I don't know how you get around the the if you start up and then you have to shut down again it's even worse than not starting up in the beginning well no, I, 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 your point is, is well taken and, and what I would add is that you know this hockey is a body contact sport yeah you know so it's different than if you and I were playing a singles tennis match and you're at that end of the, the court and I'm at this end of the court and we, we can manage social distancing yep. if we are playing a competitive tennis match. But we cannot manage social distancing if you're taking the face off against me and we're leaning in and the you know, linesman is dropping the puck and, and then you know, the wingers are coming in from both sides to, to scramble the draw. That, that, there's no social distancing and there's perspiration flying off of us and saliva flying. No, it's... It, I, like as I say, I, I I don't think it's possible. I mean, we could we could go into the macro discussion about what will the industry of professional sport look like because mm-hmm. it, there's just so many um, variables right now and so much uncertainty. But but in my mind, the the right answer would be at the very least, you know, to just notify people because people are looking for certainty. People in the industry are looking for certainty. Notify them that look, it's unrealistic to think that there that you can get games in. In, in July and August, and you, you're just you're just pushing too hard against science and pushing too hard against all of the contingencies that you just outlined. And so, I, I, what I've outlined was a way that you can you can get a resolution to the season. So rather than because I think that you know a lot of the players will tell you that they've got a lot of sweat sweat equity tied up in this particular season, and they don't want to lose that. And, and I respect that. And I think fans have a lot of. Of, of of equity tied up in the season. Look at Edmonton. You know the, yeah. the kind of season that they've had compared to the, you know the past seasons. I mean, there's there, there's reason for. I mean, you know, anybody can win in this day and age. You know, there's there's no reason to think that if they if they have a playoff that you know at some point Edmonton might not win the Stanley Cup. You know, I had a general manager say, you know, someone's going to win. Why not us? Right? And yeah. because they you just don't know what what it's going to look like and who's going to get out of the gate fast and who's going to avoid the injuries. So. Uh, the, the scenario that I outlined is, is a means of being able to play the playoffs. You're not going to make everybody happy, but but it's fair because you're rewarding the teams that had that you know that over seventy approximately seventy games for for most teams had the best record, and and then at least you have a champion. And you know people say, well, there'll be an asterisk attached. I don't agree. You know, like when when people talk about Chicago's 
three Stanley Cups. I don't know a single Blackhawks fan that says, yeah, but the one in 13 felt kind of cheap because it was a 48-game season. Mm-hmm. I, I don't hear that from anybody. They talk about three Stanley Cups in six years, and they, they enjoyed every one as much as, you know, they enjoyed the middle one as much as the first and the last one. Well, it's it's so true, and um, you know, I I look at a potential eighty-two game baseball season, and I think I love it uh, for the parity that that you know certain teams and their fan bases won't be out halfway through the season. And, you know, and I've heard a lot of the players talk about this, uh, you know, Connor McDavid in particular, uh, if they do start up this season, everybody is rested and healthy and uh, you're going to have, you know, one of the, you know, you're going to have the NHL playoffs on a full tank, which we've never seen before. If it it indeed uh, happens. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that, uh, um, the, the, the asterisk thing it, that, that doesn't matter to me really. Um, you know, there, if people are going to put an asterisk on it, uh, well, whatever. Um, it, it, I, I guess it depends if, if the format is changed, then, then sure there's, there's going to be an asterisk, but if you, if you just go in with 16 teams and have a seven game series for each one, I don't really know why it's, it should be any different than any, uh, shortened season in the past. So I'll put it this way, you know, one team is going to, under the scenario we've just discussed, one team is going to have its name on the Stanley Cup. They're going to have that moment on the ice with the Stanley Cup. Maybe, you know, their their families won't be, you know, on the ice with them. Maybe they'll have to celebrate it virtually on a, on a Zoom call or something like that. But your name is on the Stanley Cup. And when your name is on the Stanley Cup, it's there forever. And And that's the thing that will matter most to people. You betcha. So right now, a lot of us uh, are watching what we can for entertainment. One of the things that uh, entertained me over the weekend is the 87 Canada Cup. As I mentioned, I'm I'm kind of watching it right now. I find it interesting that the 87 Canada Cup has rink board advertising and like the 88 Stanley Cup doesn't. So the NHL didn't catch up with what was going on. And, and that's the cool thing about watching these these games is the, the differences in the broadcast, but also in the hockey. I mean, the, the amount of things that, that players got away with, no wonder Mario Lemieux quit the, the, the NHL at one point. I mean, like, you look at Dale Howarchuk on that game-winning goal. I know the, the Russian did a bit of a pirouette, but the, the hooking and stuff like that back in this game, man, you almost forget about it, even though we lived through it. Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, you're right. I mean, it, it, you know, the, the, the notion of what is and isn't a penalty is, uh, and not just in the Canada Cup, but all of those classic games is, is astonishing. <laughs> and I think even the managers that I speak to now, uh, especially the younger managers, you know, they can't get over that. But yeah, I mean, you know, it, it, well, first of all, you know, on, on that point, you know, they tried to clean the, the holding and hooking up time and time and time again. And they just flat out, but, you know, they, they vowed at the start of the of many, many seasons to, to crack down and it would start uh, initially and, and then, you know, the, the standard would flip as the season went on. And then it finally changed coming out of 2004, 2005. But yeah, you're right. But, you know, like as, as, as distracting as that is, because it's so out of step with what we have right now, uh, like I, I'm, I'm like you, I, I was just totally fascinated uh, by those games. I, I, I rewatched them. In fact, I taped them and then went back to watch bits and pieces of it. Uh, you know, you, sometimes you remember, you know, certain things, and of course, we saw you know that the winning goal in, in game three over and over again. So that's burned on, on the, in the memories of, of virtually every serious hockey fan. But you forget some small parts about it. Like for example, I'd forgotten that Norman Rose played on that team. Right. That James Patrick was on that team. When I think about you know the players that were cut, um, you know Steve Eisman didn't make that team. Alan Kennis didn't make Cam that Neely. team. Cam Neely. I mean, 
Yeah, it, 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 it was, it's an astonishing who's who of great Canadian players that did not make that team. And I know Mike Keenan was criticized because he brought a bunch of his uh, wire players with him. Uh, you know, Brian Prop was there uh, talking. I think Dave Poulin was like the last cut, which was probably very difficult yeah, for him. Doug and Crossman. Young, Doug, yeah, yeah, Crossman uh, uh, was, was a, you know, a guy that Keenan really relied on in, in, in Philadelphia, probably... You know, if it was someone else making the, the roster decisions, uh, wouldn't have made it. But uh, but an unbelievably talented team, and 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 a great Russian team too. So you know, like I've I've gotten to know um, Igor Larionov really well over the years. Um, we served in the Hall of Fame selection committee together for a long time. But even as a as a player, you know, like at the very start of his career, um, he told me uh, he used to read me in the hockey news back in the in Soviet Union days when you know they'd have to smuggle those hockey news in there. So. Um, so we've, you know, become pretty good friends over the years. And of course, Makarov played here uh, for a number of years before he moved on to, to San Jose. So, you know, you watch those two and Krutov, you know, like, you know, when, when Vladimir Krutov showed up in the NHL, he was overweight and slow and, and you know, just wasn't able to, to make the transition to, to North America. But what a powerful, talented player he was. I mean, it's just, yeah, the, the hockey—it blows my mind. I, I've, I've just really been enjoying it, and uh, and and I don't watch a lot of classic hockey. Uh, I'm watching more now, of course, during this pause. But but normally, like when those classic games are on, when the regular games are, I find them unwatchable because they're, they seem so slow compared to the to the modern game. But because we haven't seen mm-hmm. any current NHL for a while, you know, I've, you know, I've watched some of that. Ted Rogers was showing the '91 uh, Calgary Edmonton series. You know, that was a great series. Boy, that was. Fun to fun to cover and uh, and um, and just like high level of hockey uh, of that, both teams. So you know, you know, I often think you know because some of us covered that those really uh, halcyon years of the Battle of Alberta. You know, are we just like old people looking back saying, ah, things were better back then? But then you watch some of these series and it's like that was pretty good. That was really fun to watch. So. Uh, well, yeah, I, and, and it's so interesting, you know, the, obviously the size of the players, particularly the goaltending equipment, has radically changed uh, since back then. But uh, w- when you when you talk about Mike Keenan, and I was, I was actually surprised there weren't more flyers there, because if you go back three years to the 84 Canada Cup, it was all basically the Oilers and Islanders who hated each other right. and had just come off playing. Yeah. Um, the, the thing that stands out about Keenan coaching is, he had they had just come off losing to the Oilers in seven games. Right. Ron Hextall was the con Smythe, and Grant Fuhrer played every second of this tournament. Yeah. Like Kelly Rudy and and uh, Hextall were the backups. Keenan was the coach, and, and even in the first game, the Russians score six in this game. He doesn't. He he, he goes right back to Fuhrer. I mean, he could have easily dipped in uh, Ron Hextall. Like you know, what was the it was the O two Olympics where um, uh, Curtis Joseph. Uh, started was it curtis joseph started and then they went away so keenan could have done that with with ron hextel and he stuck with fear yeah exactly well and i think you know that probably had a lot to do with conversations they had with wayne gretzky uh and i'm sure that wayne impressed upon mike that that the the thing about uh grant is that you know he might let in some goals early but when you need that save at, at at a moment in time Grant will always come up with it because that was really the hallmark of, of Grant Fuhrer's career. I mean, the statistics are not exactly gaudy, but when they needed a save, they got a save. And that was the thing that, you know, I mean, think about it. You know, they're, they're on the ropes in, in game two in overtime, 
you know, if the Russians win that, it's yeah. not the classic series that we're talking about. It's over. Uh, you know, we're probably not watching it. Uh, and, yeah. and, you know, and of course, the, the heroics of Game 3 don't take place. And here was unbelievable. And to your point, I mean, if you're ever going to make a change, you know, you're down 3-0, eight minutes into the deciding game. Yes, yeah. Uh, you know, like, and Keenan's history as an NHL coach is that, it, you know, like, you, you, you yank him, put somebody in, you can put him back in, right. but but you give him a break, you do something to change the momentum, and he's stuck with Grant. And I think it has everything to do with the fact that, you know, at that point, you know, they were all in with, with Grant, and if they could get the game back on even terms, which they proved they could, like, these were not going to be low-scoring games. This was not, you know, like 2-1 you know, the, the Russians weren't going to try and, and lock it down at, at 3-0. They were just going to keep playing, and, and that's what happened. You know, they, everybody kept playing, and uh, and then when you needed the saves from Fury, you got them. So, yeah, it was fascinating, but, you know, Mike Keenan always was a very fascinating, uh, complex guy as a coach. Um, and I, I think that a little, almost his, um, I mean, you know, his methods were, were not always uh, the, the, you know, things that the people, um, you know, that were, that were um, it wasn't a fun, friendly environment all the time, but, uh, but, you know, he, he won everywhere. Right? I mean, he won in junior, he won in minor pro, he won in the NHL, he won internationally, he won in, he won in Russia, you know, I mean, he, you know, whatever madness there was to his method, it, it worked, you know, in a lot of places for a while. Well, for a guy nicknamed Dr. Hook, for him to not pull Grant Fuhr is so astonishing. And But then again, you're yeah. right. You know, he probably listening to the greatest player on the planet tell him, don't worry, when the chips are down, he's not going to give up the game-winning goal in this one or or something like that. And and um, I don't know. I, I just love watching these, these games and seeing, you know, the Summit Series was one thing. It was before my time. But there were games that Canada got blown out in that Summit Series. This is... 6-5-6-5-6-5 with one game going to double overtime. Tons of comebacks. I mean, for me, I, I know the golden goal was great, and this is the best uh, hockey that I watched as a single competition. Yeah. Well, I, I, w- I would agree with that. Um, uh, you know, I, I would agree with that. I, I mean, I covered, you know, I, I covered most of the Canada Well, I covered all, let's see. The first Canada Cup for me was 81. There was a 76 one. I didn't cover them all, but I, you know, I did the 81, 84, 87, 91 World Cup in 96. Did the 2004 World Cup, which really wasn't very good. <laughs> yeah. um, but of, of, of those international competitions that I was at, you know, like live, um, the 87 for sure had the most uh, drama. And, and I think that that's the, the consensus of anyone that was around during that period of time. That, uh, you know, that was the height of that, uh, of that Soviet team. That they were exceptional. Um, you know, they played, it was like a ballet, right? There, yeah. The choreography on the ice was, was wonderful to watch. Um, you know, the grit of the Canadians, uh, the skill, you know, the, the way Gretzky played game two, uh, you know, Lemieux, you know, like Mario wasn't Mario at that point. You know, Mario Lemieux was still, you know, a young player coming through the ranks, learning how to win. And, you know, that hadn't won anything at that point yet. After turning pro with Pittsburgh. And, and, you know, I think he would tell you after the fact that, you know, he learned a lot about about winning and competing and what it takes to win from his experience in that series. So, you know, you just go all up and down that lineup. It was, uh, again, great players and, and rising to the occasion. So that, that, those two elements, you know, great, sometimes great players counteract each other and, and it can be a tedious slog, but that was not the case. These were great players and they all rose to the occasion. So it was fun. 
I think I remember Gretzky saying at some point, or maybe this was after he had talked to Lemieux a couple of times and, you know, they'd have, they'd have a two on, you know, you have the two greatest players in the game pretty much at that point, or, you know, maybe Lemieux wasn't the greatest, as good as he could, was going to be, but Lemieux would pass to Gretzky and then he would give it right back. And, and I think something to the effect, he said, you know, like when I give you the pockets, you're going to score. So just start shooting yeah. it. Right. And, you know, the, and you know, Lemieux became such a prolific goal scorer, but there was also a guy on that team. And, and I'm going to lead into this feature that you did of Mike Gartner. I mean, 1730 goal seasons is one of the most underrated uh, records and streaks in sports history. And, you know, he's in this uh, Canada cup and, and I was a massive Gartner fan as a kid. And, and here I read your story the other day and I find out that, you know, uh, he can't see, he's got uh 2200 and in one eye and 2020 in the other eye. This is just amazing that this guy had the professional career he did with one eye basically. Yeah, exactly. Well, so the, the condition you're talking about, it's known euphemistically as a lazy eye. I think the technical term is amblyopia. And I have it myself. So, right. Uh, and I, you know, so, so I, I, so Mike and I, I covered him his NHL career in 2001. Um, you know, he, he was elected in the Hall of Fame as a, as a player. And that was the year that I was selected in the writers category. So we did all the Hall of Fame uh, events together that weekend. Um, we, you know, um, uh, I, I joined the Hall of Fame selection committee in 2004. A few years later, Mike joined, so we served on the on the on the main selection committee for a number of years, and we've just you know developed a, a relationship, you know, friendship, maybe too strong a word, but you know, but we you know we talk, and uh, and and I and and I have that same condition, right? So what what it does is, if you have a lazy eye, it means you, you basically can't see out of that eye. So when I go into a new optician and they cover my left eye which is my good eye i say, I, say Look, I know that the top letter on the eye chart is an e i said but i actually cannot read that you know i cannot i cannot read the e the top letter on an eye chart with my one bad eye and um you know it, it's a neurological condition that it has nothing to do with you know your optic nerves or any of those other things it's just something that uh, that develops when you're a kid and uh and, and and he has it, and 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 so you know, yeah, it, it's extraordinary because I I know how difficult it is to sort of, you know, you learn to function, but but you know, you, you'd really like to be able to you know get up in the morning and, and be able to see before you put your glasses on, and right. you don't have that ability. You have a lazy eye. So, but uh, he, the, the thing that was interesting was so we were doing this formal interview for this story, and I said, you know, I want to ask you about this. He said, you know, I've never been asked that question by a reporter before, and I said, really. But it was partly because he tried to keep it hidden, of course, as a yeah. as a player. He didn't want to give anybody any uh, un, uh, an advantage. Like if if he were to talk about it freely in his playing career, um, that that you know that, that would have allowed teams to, to check him differently. You know, knowing that he has one side that he sees really well out of, and the other side where he you know isn't very good. And he always said that occasionally the coaches would have these bright ideas of switching him to the left side from the right side. He just wasn't very, you know, he couldn't function as well over there. So he always just blamed it on the fact that he just couldn't make the adjustment and just leave me over there. And for the most part, he said, coaches went along with it. And he said when, uh, when he would, uh, when he would do the eye test at, uh, at NHL or professional training camps, he would cheat a little bit because they give you like a little, you know, the black stick that, that you put over your, your good eye and you just kind of move it to one side and use his good eye to read the, <laughs> the eye chart. So he managed to keep it hidden for, for two decades. And, uh, um, so yeah, we had a pretty good conversation about it. And in fact, he told me that, uh, that he, he'd had that conversation with his son just like within the last month. And, uh, and, and he, even his son did not know about this. And, and, and his son said the same thing that you did. He said, you mean you played 20 years in the NHL and scored 708 goals? And, and you couldn't see out of that eye. And he goes, yep. <laughs> so 
it's uh, yeah, it was a pretty interesting story, and and it is interesting too because you know we have you know people comment on our stories, and and the number of people with this condition that have sub- that subsequently you know joined the conversation in the comment section surprised me a little bit because you know like when you have it, you know like again you don't really like to talk about it. And, uh, so, you know, you have all these people that say, that's me too. And, uh, and everybody's saying the same thing, knowing what it's like to try and just sort of see with one good eye to have the kind of career that he had is, is extraordinary. But, you know, his whole, his career was on, based on speed. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, that part of the story is well known that, you know, when he was a kid, he, uh, he, he took skating lessons before he took hockey lessons. And, um, you know, he, he was the, fastest skater at the all-star game i mean that record lasted 20 years and uh and i think the guy who broke it did it from a, a, a skating start right. rather than a standing start and so you know you could almost attach an asterisk to that and uh, you know people have been saying that you know, when gartner goes out and plays in these charity games right now he can still fly and the last time i saw him he looked like he's still in pretty tremendous uh shape and you know he was an effective player in that tournament the 87 canada cup uh you know, a lot of people probably don't remember, but he, you know, he played in the WHA with Mark Messier in Cincinnati that year, uh, that their you know first pro year, the last year of the WHA, and then of course they were both drafted in the NHL. You know, Gartner was fourth overall, and I think Messier was 48. But um, but they have a history going back to Cincinnati. They played together in a Canada Cup, and of course they they were in New York together. And then you know, Mike Keenan, in his infinite wisdom, traded him to Toronto for Glenn Anderson. You know, yeah. the trade deadline before the '94 uh, Stanley Cup, and you know, of course, the Rangers did win the cup. But I'm pretty sure that's the most disappointing moment in Garner's career. Because on the one hand, he got a chance to go home and play in Toronto, which was good, but the opportunity to win the Stanley Cup that was that was his best shot. And um, you know, he lost that opportunity because he was traded, uh, you know, months before the playoffs began that year. Yeah, I just, uh, I you know, I remember, you know, Mike Gardner is just. Uh, you know, we used to play a game called Stratomatic Hockey, and you you just knew mm-hmm. you were guaranteed. It was like a, a guarantee that you were getting at least thirty goals from Mike Gardner, and you know some of them he reached in the upwards of forty eight, and I think he had uh, at least one fifty goal season. Um, one fifty goal season. Yeah. So yeah. like this guy was just uh, it was like clockwork, right? You just knew exactly you were going to get a, at least uh, uh, thirty goals, and, and yeah, you say it. You, you he gets traded before. Um, the uh, the Stanley Cup uh, success in in 1994, which seemed like it was strange, but they were accumulating a lot of ex Oilers back then. Um, do you think Mike Gartner? Um, you know, we, in that in that article, you talk about uh, how o- he's still ahead of Ovechkin for now. Um, so yeah, Ovechkin's yeah. <laughs> obviously going to pass uh, uh, Mike Gartner. Uh, the big question is, does he get to Gretzky? But do you think Mike Gartner is underrated uh, when when it comes to you know? I know he's in the Hall of Fame, so it's hard to say a guy in the Hall of Fame is underrated. But he just, I just, you know, guys talk about prolific goal scorers and there's bossy in his nine 50 goal streaks. And that's not, you know, the same as 17, 30 goal seasons, but 17, 30 goal seasons in a row is amazing. Yeah. A level of consistency. Well, here's the thing. So as long as I've been around hockey, if you speak to hockey coaches about what they're looking for from a professional player, it is consistency, yes. right? They, they want, a, they want the same effort night after night after night. And that's what separates the goods from from the greats and, and and the near greats and and also from you know players that you know that show flashes and then and they can't sustain that. So you're right. I, I think it's I think his consistency is remarkable. And and the two years he played 19 years, the two years he didn't get there. One was the final year of his career when he was with Phoenix and he missed 20 games because of a of an injury. It was the only time he got hurt. And then of course during the 
a lockout season. He missed 10 games in a lockout season with a collapsed lung and only played 38 games and wasn't able to get to 30. But for the most part, you know, like there's, you know, an asterisk attached to each of those things. The rest of the time he was, you could just rely on him to, to score those goals. And that to me is, is a quality that, that coaches prize. And, uh, and then, you know, just to, again, the way he conducted himself, I mean, he's a, he's a thorough professional. Um, you know, he's always prepared to play, you know, didn't play guilty because he wasn't, you know, didn't play drunk or any of that. I mean, he's, he was just a guy that night in and night out showed up and, 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 and gave you what he had. And so um, that matters to coaches. Um, I don't know that necessarily always matters to fans. And I think that a lot of fans, when they reflect on his career, you know, will, will cite the fact that he, you know, didn't win a Stanley Cup as a, as a mark against him. I, I don't believe that. I mean, Marcel Dion didn't win a Stanley mm-hmm. Cup. Lots of great players. I mean, sometimes it's circumstances. And, and in his particular case, I mean, when he was drafted by the Washington Capitals, they were terrible. Yeah. I mean, they were just flat out terrible. And then David Poyle went in there, made the trade for, uh, for Langway and brought in Doug Jarvis and, and Craig Laughlin and, and Brian Engblom and they got better and, and they were you know they went from being a franchise laughing stock to a very good team during the period of time he was there and then the trade they made uh, with Minnesota so he was originally traded from Washington to Minnesota for Gino Cicerelli and then eventually you know traded to, to New York and then you know then Toronto after that he was traded for Hall of Famers multiple times in his uh, in his career and so you know the, yeah I, I think that the perception is when, when when people, especially because as you cite, Ovechkin is now at 706 goals, Gartner's at 708, and there's been this steady perception through the ranks of uh, you know Ovechkin. So you know he passed Lemieux this year, he passed Eiserman, you know he still hasn't passed Gartner. So when you look at that, you know people would say, wow, you know eight players in history have scored 700 goals, and most fans I think could name seven of them. The one that they mm-hmm. might miss is Mike Gartner. Yeah, it's uh, it's so funny, and consistency is everything. From like you mentioned, uh, the the amount of games played uh, that he had, and you know, like you go you going back to that '87 Canada Cup. That's why Mike Keenan picked some of those guys because he knew when he uh, tapped them on the back to go over the boards, he w- he was going to get exactly what he knew he w- wanted. And you know, I look at uh, a similar situation. You know, Brent Sutter is coaching the 2005 World Junior Team. You know, the the team many consider the greatest of all time, and he picked Colin yeah. Frazier for that team because he coached him in Red Deer and he knew what he was going to get every time he went over the board. So coaches are like that, yeah. and and every coach would have loved a guy like uh, Mike Gartner. Now, th- the big question when it comes to Ovechkin is. Do you think he catches Gretzky? You know, if you'd asked me that 12 months ago, I probably would have said no. Uh, uh, certainly after they won the Stanley Cup, I, like a lot of people, I was just wondering where uh, where his uh, level of, of hunger and motivation would be. Because, you know, again, you know, a lot of people have been critical of Alex Ovechkin because he hadn't won yet in the playoffs. And, and so, you know, in, in some people's minds, that, that, put an, uh, that overshadowed everything else that he'd accomplished in his career. So finally, they do win. And then you wonder, you know, you know sort of they had that, you know, that, you know, that summer of celebration. And you know, I really wondered what, what would happen when they came back. Like, you know, you talk about Stanley Cup hangovers. I think most people think of it as in a metaphorical sense. Um, in, in the case of the Capitals, you know, I think you could also apply the term literally yeah. to the way they carried on. Uh, and yet they came back and, and uh, you know, had a very good next year. And Ovechkin continued to score. And similarly this year, you know, like all scorers, he occasionally has a, a dry patch, but but it never seems to last. And, and eventually he, he breaks out of it with a bang. So, 
you know, you look at what it would take. He's at 706. Gretzky's at 894. I mean, he has to be really consistent for another four years in that 45 range to, to be within within range of it. And so I, I think that I think it's doable. Yeah, I, I do think it's doable. I, I you know, you you can never you never know when the bottom is going to fall out of a player, or 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 even if the bottom doesn't fall out, if there's a gradual erosion in in the in the level that he plays at. I think when when Yarmir Yager came back from the KHL, a lot of people were wondering how much did Yager have left in the tank, and could he be, you know, a a, a great player again? And and he might not have been, you know, Yarmir Yager MVP candidate great or Yarmir Yager scoring champion great, but he was an effective player you know, well into his 40s. And, and so, you know, if, if Ovechkin retains the motivation and, and wants to keep going, and if there's nothing else going on in his life and he doesn't want to, you know, go back and play a couple of years in Russia, because sometimes that happens, you know, it's happened with, with Gatsuk. And, and, you know, it, it doesn't sound like he's interested in doing that. So I, I think I think he'd like to, you know, to hang in. I think he'd like to sign another contract with, uh, with Washington when this one expires. I think he'd like to take a run at it. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I think in a situation like that, you go year by year by year, but, but if, you know, if he can continue to produce 45 to 50 goals a year, it's, you know, he's going to be within range pretty soon. You have had the, uh, you've had the pleasure of covering a lot of, uh, you know, really, uh, great, uh, hockey eras or games. I mean, you, you were able to cover the miracle on ice, which is so cool. And I want to touch on that in a bit, but the battle of Alberta is something that you have had the opportunity to see firsthand at its height. I mean, we're talking like, uh, Jersey cutting with a skate height and, yeah, yeah. and things like that. that. <laughs> um, and, and then now where we saw Cassie and Kachuk and the goalies fighting, Ryan Nugent Hopkins and Monaghan, and, and it finally yeah. seems like it's revived, but you would know better than anybody. You need a playoff to keep and, and to keep that yeah. rivalry stoked like it was during the eighties. I would agree with that. You know, and then there have been a handful of times since 1991 when they last played where it, you know, you look at the standings going down the stretch and you imagine a scenario where there could possibly be a battle of Alberta and then, you know, something changes and somebody loses and, and, uh, and it hasn't happened. So it really is extraordinary that it's been, you know, close to 30 years now since they've met in the playoffs. The fact that they're, you know, been in the same division that period of time, it's, uh, it doesn't, it, it really seems wrong actually that, uh, uh, that we haven't had a battle of Alberta. And I think that it has diminished the rivalry. The, the, you know, the fact that, you know, there there were times in the last thirty years when when you know Calgary wasn't very good, and there were times when Edmonton wasn't very good. So, you know, I think you need really good teams to make a good rivalry, and then as you said, you need to, you need to have these 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 playoff matchups. I mean, ninety one probably isn't the most memorable battle of Alberta uh, that you know, comes to mind because I think people think about the, the battles of Alberta and you know the years that you know the Oilers won championships and, and certainly in, in 86 when Edmonton had that great team and lost that weird game game mm-hmm. seven but uh, but just watching the 91 series again uh, on on television uh, recently you know I was remind, I was struck first of all by how good Mike Vernon was in goal for the for the Flames you know terribly underrated uh, player never really was appreciated I don't think by fans in, in Calgary in my mind should be in the Hall of Fame and isn't um, but uh, but the competitiveness of, of that series and how hard they played and you know that, that was not an era um, like they hadn't quite got to that dead puck era yet but it was sort of trending in that direction but the skating was really good it was wide open hockey it was a, it was really fun to watch as I say I, I, I'm not a big fan 
of watching classic hockey, but boy, those playoff series were, were sensational. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, that the two series that, that, you know, always jump out at me was 84, because the first year the Oilers won the Stanley Cup, they went to seven with, uh, with Calgary. And it was a, it was a, it was a hard fought series. And then in that final game, you know, Messi was just a, a, a one man wrecking ball. Like he put three flames out of the lineup with devastating hits. Reinhardt, Kinnis, and, and, and Eves. And then I, I believe, because you know, Kevin Lowe said this after they won, that, that, that the lessons that they learned in winning in the second round in, in Calgary served them in good stead when they finally got to the finals against uh, the Islanders, that they, it helped them take that step because it was, it was a war. And then in 86, of course, that, that was a really fun series. I, I thought that 86, Oilers team, and you know, we've had this discussion. You know, what's the, the best team of all time? I mean, that might have been their best team. You know, mm. like that might have been their best. I, I know they didn't win. You know, and and so it, it's never going to you know go down in the history books as, as their best team. But I think they had like 119 points. I can't remember. I don't have it in front of me. But they were they were dominant. That was a great great team. And uh, and and so you know, for Calgary to compete against them, like they were taking their game to the next level. And that was the year that you know that they. Switched to Vernon and goal. That, that was always one of the big things in the Battle of Alberta. The Calgary never had a goaltender that that uh, that that could hold the fort against uh, against those great offensive teams. And as good as Reggie Lemelin was for them for a number of years, and he was he was a real good goalie for them. Um, he he had a mental block about Edmonton, and they just lit him up. And so when Vernon came in and won the starting spot, he had a history uh, with Grant Fear going back to junior. A very cocky, confident guy, and uh, and 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 it changed the the approach. And I, I think when they started to get a little bit more consistent goaltending, you know, Calgary became more competitive. And that series really only gets good if both teams are are competitive. And and then you know, the, then the Flames eventually. I mean, the team that won the Cup in '89 had like six six of the twelve forwards scored 50 goals at least once in their career. I mean, that was a, that was a real good team too. A bunch of them are in the hall of fame. And uh, so, yeah, the overall level of hockey and then, and then just the physicality of it and the, and the genuine, you know, uh, dislike. I mean, you know, the players are very friendly towards each other right now. Yeah. Um, although, you know, as you say, you know, the, it, it took a turn for the, depending on what, better or worse, depending on how you want to look at it this year, uh, just because of uh you know, of our friend Matthew Kachuk and our friend Zach Cassian. So I didn't, I, I didn't have a problem with any of that, by the way. The fact that, uh, that it got going a little bit, uh, I don't care how it got going. The fact that it did was, right. was the most important thing as far as I'm concerned. And, and I, I, I do think, you know, I mean, you look at those pieces in Edmonton, you know, Drysdale and McDavid, fantastic. Some of those young players coming up are going to be, going to be really good. Assuming the goaltending holds up, you know, they've got a, a nice, uh, mix there for a long time, and and you know, and Calgary's not old. You know, these players that they've got that are their core are still. I don't even think they're in their primes yet either. And Chuck is going to just keep getting better, and with the exception of Giordano, who might eventually age out, although you know, still playing pretty well right now. They're, 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 these are these are these are teams that are going to be good teams for a while, and and so I'm looking forward to the resumption of the Battle of Alberta. Really looking forward to seeing these teams play in the playoffs at some point, and then and then seeing if if it. It can happen more than once because that was the other thing that was 
so great about uh, about those years in the 1980s. It wasn't just one year. There was multiple battles of Alberta, and they were all really good. Well, yeah, and, and you know, it was shaping up this year. It might have it. It almost happened in 06 when the Oilers made that run to yeah. the to the final. In fact, everybody in Edmonton was thinking that, oh, well, we're going to get a battle of Alberta. I think Ron Wilson actually uh, played off it a little bit uh, with, with his stuff. But I always found it interesting how the two teams were built. I mean, you had Glenn Sather watching the hotline in the WHA days of of, of Winnipeg, uh, and then he develops the Oilers that way. And then, you know, the Flames' response to, you know, they went and the, how they built their team, bringing in some college players and, you know, specifically uh, to beat the Oilers. And, you know, as much as I was an Oilers fan, I lived in Brandon, Manitoba, and the Jets never stood a chance. You, you had one of the best players in the game, Dale Howardchuk, never getting past the first round. I mean, the Jets and the, the Canucks, and whoever else, the, the Kings, they were just in the wrong division. The Flames and the Oilers dominated that smite division for 10 years. Um, and and the, the the Flames built their team to adapt against the Oilers and, and you know, succeeded at least twice. Yeah, no, 100%. Well, you know, there's a few keys. You know, the goaltending we've talked about already, I would say the other thing is that, um, you know, Mark Messier was such a force and uh, they, they had no answer uh, for Mark Messier. You know, they eventually... You know, they, I mean, nobody ever stopped Wayne Gretzky, but, but, you know, they became a little bit better at taking away his, his options and forcing him to shoot and, and minimizing as much as you can the, his, uh, his impact. But, but they had no answer for Messi until, until they developed Joel Otto. And he, he to me was like a, a, like a critical, really underrated piece because he was big, he was tough, he could skate. And there was, there's very few players that would go head to head against Messi and, and be able to, stand up to the physical challenge. And, and really, I think Otto was the only one. I often think that, um, you know, Guy Carboneau was getting most of the love for the selfie trophy in those days in Montreal and eventually made it to the Hall of Fame. But if you'd reverse them and put Joel Otto in Montreal and brought Carboneau out here and had to have Carboneau check Messi, I wonder, I wonder uh, if he had been able to do it. I mean, he was a clever player and, and a talented guy and, 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 and very uh, smart uh, but 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 Messi was he was in, in his prime he was such a physical force that you you know like you needed somebody with a real unique skill set and that was Joel Otto and again it wasn't like they took Messi completely out of the picture but they uh, Otto mitigated some of the damage so I think that was really critical they had they had skill on that team but they also had size and toughness which you had, which you needed against Edmonton you know the you know people sometimes forget about the physicality of uh, of, of those series. I go back to 80, 91 only because I've been watching it recently on TV and we always think about the skill in the Battle of Alberta but the physicality oh, yeah. and not you know not the, not the fighting you know like the, the fighting you know that was that was but but you know it was a war out there and uh, you know and then eventually you're right they they did develop the the sort of players that they needed to compete against them and uh and three of them were, as you say, college free agents, players you got for nothing, because Jamie McCallum was a huge factor, um, you know, a way underrated defenseman, mm-hmm. uh, played a top four role on the team. He was kind of their Lee Fogelin, I guess, for, for lack of a better term. And then Colin Patterson, because he was the, the defensive conscience of, uh, of Gilmore and Mullen, and that was a very effective line. You know, most people in Calgary would, you know, if you were listing the lines, you might have had, you know, New and Glube and, and Roberts as, as the top line. I was at Gilmore. Uh, Mullen and, and Patterson listed first, and and then that line second, and you know, and then you know you could roll Joel Otto out as your third center, and eventually, you know, when Theo Fleury was coming through the ranks, he was, you know, he was a kind of a, a change up guy uh, out of the four C spot, and uh, 
you know, and, and kind of a, you know, in, in that sort of feel flurry way of his, uh, you know, gets under your skin, which I think was also a factor in uh, in what made that series so great. Well, and that's what Matthew Kachuk is is uh, so good at, as as you mentioned. Who cares? what uh, ignited the spark just uh, we're happy that the the spark is there um i, I want to ask you about um you know kind of a little bit about uh, the the media landscape sports media landscape uh, that we're in and and how it's changed but i want to go back to the beginning for you and you know you got you had an opportunity to cover one of the greatest sporting events of all time very earlier in your career you almost it's almost like you won the stanley cup in the first couple of your years because you got to cover the miracle on ice uh, earlier in your career, right? like what a moment like that was. I, I I'd imagine you didn't realize how special it was at the time, or, or maybe you did. No, 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 not really. I, I would, you know. So briefly, the background is that you know I started full time. So my first full time job was in Calgary in 1978 at the Calgary Albertan, which uh, eventually folded and became the Calgary Sun. But I was hired as a ski writer. So again, you know, a kid growing up in Toronto, my parents were emigrated from Austria. We were skiers. Um, and so I graduated from journalism school. I had a summer internship at the Toronto Star, but I was looking for full-time work. And, uh, and I got an offer to come out and cover downhill skiing for the Calgary Alberta. They didn't, they were looking for a ski writer. And, uh, and I remember the sports editor, Lynn Watson at the time said, you know, did you ever do any skiing? Yeah, I kind of like skiing. And, uh, he said, yeah, we're looking for a ski writer. Said all my guys want to cover curling. And uh, I thought, oh, that's, Odd. As an as a urban kid from Toronto, that made no sense to me. But if they didn't want to go out and cover skiing, that was fine. So that was the heyday of the crazy Canucks. Ken Reed was a, a Calgarian. Um, you know, got to cover him. You know, we still have lunch, you know, together, you know, once or twice a year. Lives in the same part of the, of the city as I do. And, uh, but what happened then was that in 1979, they brought the Canadian Olympic team back. So Canada didn't send uh, Olympic teams in 72 and 76. They were boycotting because the Soviets, they said, were, were not amateurs, and they felt it was an unfair playing field. But they decided to, under Father David Bauer, resurrect the team. They put the team in Calgary, and uh, it was based you know, in the, uh, out of the corral. The players lived in, a, in an ATCO barracks that were on the, on the stampede grounds. Uh, Claire Drake, uh, Lauren Davis, and Tom Watt coached the team. Glenn Anderson before uh, he joined the Oilers, was uh, was a key member of that team, unbelievable player at uh, you know at that level. And because I was going to Lake Placid anyway to cover downhill skiing, because Ken Reed was the downhill favorite, I was assigned to cover that Olympic team. So I actually I actually saw seven games between the Canadian team and the American team prior to the Olympics. I don't believe anybody else covered that many games because the other paper in town didn't travel. So I did the three games in Calgary. I did the pre-Olympic tournament in Lake Placid. And then there was a tour in Minnesota and North Dakota that I won. So I actually got to know the, the American players. And Herbie Brooks and I, you know, in the movie Miracle, he's always fighting with the press. Well, mm-hmm. one of those guys he was fighting with in real life was me. And he used to not want to do interviews. So he'd send Craig Patrick out, who was the assistant coach. And then and that's how I got to know Craig Patrick. We ended up having a very successful career as a general manager. So, yeah, so I, I, you know, I got to know both of those teams, but I was primarily in Lake Placid to cover the Canadian team. Uh, and they were in a different bracket than the Americans. And, and of course, the, you know, Ken Reed, unfortunately, lost the ski 15 minutes, 15 mm-hmm. seconds into his run and, and, and didn't medal. Steve Pogorski did. Um, we had a, also a Canadian uh, Calgary figure skater, Brian Pokar, who I think finished fifth or sixth. But, um, when the Canadian team was eliminated, um, you know, it just stayed on and, and, and covered the rest of the tournament. And so, you know, I was aware that the Americans were having a good tournament, but I wasn't 
paying real close attention. You, when you were there on site, you didn't really feel like anything was happening until that Friday when they beat the beat the Russians. And the thing about it was the paper I worked for in those days didn't have a Saturday paper. So um, <laughs> I couldn't write it live. So the first story that appears under my byline is on the Saturday, on the Sunday. And if you remember, Herb Brooks wouldn't allow the players to do any interviews then. He was, he had, you talk about Mike Keenan's mind games. Herb Brooks had a lot of that stuff going on that Olympic year there. So then I, I still remember on the Saturday afternoon, he brought everybody into the uh, Lake Placid High School, where the press center was, and put everybody on the stage. And then they had this, this press conference. And it was very formal and, and really creaky almost, you know, to, to see how it unfolded. Lots of questions to Ruzioni, lots to, to Herb. Um, and then, of course, you know, this was after they'd won, a day after they'd won that game, and they kept, you know, talking about how, you know, nothing is won yet, we still have to beat the fans, and of course, then they did on the, on the Sunday, and that was the other thing, it was a little bit anticlimactic, mm. because this win over Russia was just this monumental thing, so it went, the story went from zero to a hundred instantly, and, uh, and, and yet, you know, it was a round robin, and if you, if you, they lost to the Finns. They they wouldn't have won the gold medal. So they had to win this game. That you know, I think everybody assumed that they were going to win. And it's like, well, Finland's pretty good, you know. And and you know, they did manage to squeeze out the victory. But even writing the second game was not. It's, I don't know. It didn't feel. It, it felt differently. So it was. It was. It was just because there seemed to be this general feeling that just beating the Russians was the gold medal game, which of course it wasn't. But uh, but it was. It was quite an event and. You know, then after the fact, you know, the uh, you know, a bunch of those players turned pro, like Jim Craig signed with Atlanta. Um, you know, Ken Moore went on and won the Stanley Cup with uh, with with the Islanders, and it just it, it created this momentum for for U.S. hockey that uh, that hadn't been there before. And then, you know, six months later, the Flames moved from Atlanta to Calgary, and, and now we've got NHL hockey, and and Edmonton had had it for a year already. And then, you know, from there, it was you know full speed ahead but yeah it was it was it was really um an, an odd feeling because you didn't you don't realize in the moment that you're covering history it's only after the fact when when it really resonates what this event was and, and you know it wasn't like it was just a hockey game but it was but but you know it was it was a great upset it was but then you know sort of this whole industry that is built up around that the movies and everything else and, and the, you know, and, and the way hockey in the U S exploded and you trace it all back to this event. And so, yeah, it's a pretty cool feeling to, you know, like I, you know, I still have my credential from Lake Placid there. had a lot more hair. <laughs> I looked a lot younger, but, uh, but yeah, I, I stare at it all the time. It's just sitting uh, with all my other credentials over the years. So. Craziest thing about that is taking off, pulling Trechak in, in the second period. And he, he later admitted it was the greatest mistake of his life. But, you know, here you have, yeah. in, in my opinion, maybe the greatest goalie of all time and, and the, the biggest yeah. crime that he never played in the NHL, although certainly would have changed Patrick Waugh's career because they they, they would have brought uh, Trechak over just before Patrick Waugh would have came up. But the fact that they he pulled this great goalie in a, in a, such a close game, I, I, Trechak must have been like, what are you doing? Or maybe he didn't because it was taken off. Yeah. Well, what I would tell you is, uh, so Canada had played Russia a couple of days before that. And at the end of two periods, Canada was leading 4-3. So they eventually ended up losing the game 6-4. Um, but but Trechak wasn't very good in that game either. And he hadn't been having a very good tournament. So a lot of people hmm. uh, break that down and they isolate it to that single game against the Americans. And, and to me, 
and again, I've never spoken to Chikanov about this, so I'm only surmising. But but what I would tell you is that he had he had there there was there had been issues with his play in the whole tournament. I they they almost lost a couple of times prior mm, to that. Okay. Um, Canada had them on the ropes. It was four three at the end of two, and uh, be, you know before the Americans ever won. You know, I'm sitting there watching this thing, thinking, "Come on, can it really happen?" And, and Glenn Anderson was really good against the Russians in, the, in, in that particular game. They didn't have an answer for his outside speed. They just weren't expecting it. He was he was by far the most skilled player on that team, and he, he had that reckless style that they weren't used to. And, and he would just burst off the wing, and he, he would get around the defenseman and, and create scoring chances for himself. He, he had a hell of a time finishing that year, is what I remember. He would create all these scoring chances and then couldn't finish, but. If somebody was coming up to follow the play, they often could finish for him. So, um, so th- th- that would be my answer to your to your question that mm. uh, it wasn't just he was having uh, you know an off game; he was having an off tournament. And I think that, that probably factored into the decision. It was the wrong decision; should have stuck with him. Uh, the Russians were a far better team than the Americans. They would have probably like they they prevailed against Calgary. They had the Canada. They had to come back uh, and and win in the in the third period against Canada. I think they would potentially have been able to do that against uh you know against the americans too but you know again that's you know you, can't, you don't rewrite history right? yeah, you that's can right, speculate yeah. about it but but it's that's just the way it worked right so. yeah the only more bizarre decision involves not uh putting gretzky in the shootout in 98 but that's a real sore spot for me and i would talk for an hour about that so i don't want to okay let's <laughs> not then <laughs> I, I, I was uh, i was in the big hat arena <sighs> watching that uh, shootout I, I i literally i could have reached out. i was so close to the ice for that and uh and i had no problems i think they started with mckinnon and so because i knew that you know and i thought to myself and they were having so much trouble with hashik and yeah. i thought you know like uh, the high I, I said i want that's what i wanted to see i wanted to see mckinnon step over the blue line one stride two stride three stride and just snap and just, one yeah you know rip it you know and and see what happens and uh uh, but it was, you know, it was, it was a Shanahan, you know, Brendan Shanahan, really good player, Hall of Famer, but you know, like one timers and, and, you know, and, and tappings down low, right. Mm-hmm. You know, like I didn't think he's the guy, you know, one-on-one against Hashik at that time of his game. I, I would have, I would have turned to Wayne at that point. Most of us would have. <laughs> yeah. Um, you were part of, uh, my favorite, um, kind of media time in the, in the mid nineties, uh, you joined uh, Hockey Night in Canada as uh, an, an intermission, a hot stove guy, and then, you know, p- kind of part-time and then moved into it full-time. But that was right when I was getting it. Like, I got into broadcasting in 97. That was my first gig at okay. TV. So that mid-90s thing was, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of internet. We didn't know a lot about it. At least I didn't. There, there weren't really, um, like, internet insiders. You guys were kind of the first insiders, and, and I loved it. I mean, like, Al Strachan used to make me so angry with the stuff he said, and then... <laughs> I get into radio and I realize that, well, he's maybe playing a bit of a part. I mean, the the one that stands out, it was this giant panel at an all-star game and Strachan wanted to allow NHLers to bet on games and Sather was on the yeah. panel and said, you're just in your own world. And now yeah. I look back on it and I'm like, Strachan was the perfect foil. He was, and, and, and I just love those segments. I look forward to those segments more than any other intermission segment on, on the broadcast. I thought you guys, it was just such yeah. a fun thing to watch and, and learn like, oh, this is happening in Calgary or this is happening in Toronto or, or whatnot. It was, it must've been a fun part to, to, to be a part of that. Yeah, absolutely. And John Shannon gets all the credit for that, right? So a lot of people, uh, you know, that, that have been watching television the last 20 years would know John Shannon as, as somebody that appeared on, on Rogers Sportsnet, uh, 
telecast. Uh, you know, very, you know, we'd see him at Edmonton lots, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, but John was the executive producer of Hockey Night in Canada at that time, and and and, and he created that. So it was a satellite hot stove that you're talking about, and and. It was, it was spun off a little bit of the success that, that Don Sherry and, and Ron McLean were having with Coach's Corner because like, when I was watching hockey growing up in the 60s and 70s, you know, the, you know people would go to the, the bathroom or the fridge or whatever during intermissions and right. there would be interviews with players, but it really wasn't, you know, they, they, they didn't see it as programming. They, they just saw it as filler to get it through to, to the games. And so what they found was that the ratings that they were getting for Coach's Corner, the more people were watching that. So people would go to the fridge with a couple of minutes left in the, in the, in the period so that they wouldn't miss coach's corner or they would watch coach's corner. And then, be, you know, during the commercials where they got in the second period, then they would do their errand. So they thought is, you know, Shannon thought, is there something that we can do for the second period that will mimic that? And so he invented the satellite hot stove and I wasn't on it originally. It was Jim Houston. That was the Western Canadian correspondent. Um, and, uh, and Ron McLean hosted and John Davidson was a regular out of New York when he could make it. And a lot, and Strack wasn't even on every week. It was Strack, uh, three times out of four and once a month it was Red Fisher. And then the panel gradually slowly evolved. And my opportunity came when, when Huey left to, to do Vancouver Canucks broadcast and that opened up the Western Canada spot. So John McGeechy did some work out of Vancouver, your man Terry Jones in Edmonton and I was on. And then gradually it went from, you know, once every three weeks uh, for me to, you know, just be in the Western Canadian guy for, you know, seven or eight years. And yeah, it was fun. I mean, and, and you're right. Um, you know, we all had a role in that. Ron was the, the gatekeeper, but, but he wasn't like a traditional host because he would offer his opinions too. So mm-hmm. he's not just directing traffic. You know, he would, he would chime in with his, with his own opinion. And Strack was very definitely the bat, the black hat. Mm-hmm. That was a role that he cultivated. He was the guy that would say outrageous things. And JD and I would, what are you talking about? <laughs> and John was the former player, right? So he would bring the perspective there. And I was kind of the information guy. And so yeah. everybody had a role in that, uh, in that thing. And, uh, and, but the, the strangest thing. So like Strachan and I are fast friends. So he's retired in Florida right now. We talk all the time. We're hockey pool partners. You know, JD and I were on the Hall of Fame selection committee. We're, we're fast friends. I mean, but people say, you, you can tell you guys don't like each other. And it's like, <laughs> that is not true. It was the farthest thing from the truth. We could, we would have these disagreements on the air, but, but we were friends, you know, yeah. and, and we, we, and it wasn't, yeah, it was, you know, everybody just brought their own perspective and you could, you know, like I could think one thing and Strack could think something else and, and that was okay. We'd go for a beer afterwards. So, um, yeah, and it was really fun. Um, it really helped my profile when I started. I was at the Calgary Herald, so you know, kind of a big fish in a small pond, and that created national presence for me. And then when I left the Herald in 2000, you know, and joined the Globe and Mail, I already sort of established myself, you know, sort of beyond the you know the smaller market that I was in. And then te- and television and hockey night really helped me uh, as far as that goes. Well, yeah, it's it's true. I I, I worked with Bob Stoffer for a long time in, in radio, and I would come on his show, and we had some fantastic, you know, knock them down, drag them out arguments, and and you know, we're still good friends to this day. I mean, you, that's the yeah. that's the thing that people don't realize. It's not like you're acting, but maybe you're uh, maybe exaggerating, but it's also that two good friends can have a difference of opinion, and they just could be mm-hmm. yeah. really good at uh, at arguing. And and I think you know, talk radio has really obviously taken off in the last number of years and in the whole sports media landscape is uh changing you know talk radio blow up and 
now there's all the the layoffs. I was unfortunately part of the Bell Media cutbacks, and you know my yeah. uh, night show and pregame sh- duties got uh, you know cut back. So now I'm into uh, podcasting, and um, you know the 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 outlets like the Athletic that are popping up. I mean, um, you know it's 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 wonderful in a way that. Uh, people have different avenues than the traditional television, radio, print, but it's also scary that a lot of these traditional jobs are are going by the wayside right now. Yeah, well, no, you're right, and 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 you know, like I, I you know, but once or twice a year, I, I do a lament about the good old days, and I'm conscious of the fact that you can't be the nostalgia king because because nobody wants to read that indefinitely. But it really was like when we when we started in in, in the 1980s, there was. There was no TSN. There was no Rogers Sportsnet. Um, it was really, you know, like myself and George Johnson and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and Jim Matheson and, and Dick Chubay and Jonesy would be around. And, and you know, so when we went in the dressing room, there would be a few of us around Wayne Gretzky. And he knew who we were, right. you know. And, and, and so it, it was more collegial, I guess. And, and it was more like an interaction with, like, real conversations with people and um and and you know that that gradually changed, and and it's harder, I think, for reporters today because you know, like you know, players, you know, they, you know, they they scrum after practices, they scrum after games, they're staring down the the, the barrel of multiple cameras. A lot of times, it's people that they they don't necessarily know, and uh, and I think you get an awful lot of you know canned answers mm-hmm. to canned questions, and and sort of the real interaction that we had, which were where people would tell funny stories. It, it, that just doesn't happen anymore. So I try not to, to go down that rabbit hole too often because, you know, it's boring to people and nobody wants to, to hear about how much better the good old days were. But, but I really w- wonder and hope that because we're starting to see, you know, players show a little bit more personality in these Zoom chats they're making available, if, if that gives them permission to show a little mm. bit more of their personalities when they get back to play. I hope that that's the case. Like if there's one positive that's going to come out of this, it's going to be, you know, Ryan Getzlaff. Does he remember how positively it was reviewed when, when he's there showing people the, the chicken soup? Because then you saw some of his personality. He's so boring most of the time. But you know there's more to him. He played junior in Cali. I know there's more to him. But yes. he just won't show that in, in interviews anymore. So we're starting to see a little bit more of the personalities of the players bubble at the surface. I believe that they're there. I think they, they need to give themselves permission to... To, to show it a bit more. And and just then in terms of outlets, yeah, I, when I left the Golden Mail in, in 2017, I mean, I, you know, I, I was a union shop, um, you know, defined benefit pension plan, six weeks of vacation. I mean, you know, it was almost like being a, you know, like a, you know, member of the Canadian Senate. It was a job for life if I wanted mm-hmm. it. Um, you know, and then the, the athletic is this startup and who knows. And, and, and it was like, uh, that was, a, you know, like a crossroads for ultimately, you know, you, you leave what looks like the safe haven to go to this startup. And now three years later, you know, the Globe has done away with their Saturday sports page. Um, you know, there's almost a negligible sports presence there. The daily newspapers, you know, when I started at the, at the Herald, you know, I think we had a staff of 20. I think there might be three people working there now, mm-hmm. but the athletic is growing. And so, uh, you know, one of my colleagues said to me a, a couple of weeks ago, isn't it odd that we felt like we were taking this this big gamble, and then it's one of the few, and it might be the only safe haven left on the on the quote print side. And um, so, yeah, it, it, it's you know, life is it's interesting how it's evolved. I mean, I don't know how many people that that listen to your podcast read the Athletic. Um, I mean, if you're a sports fan who's a reader, and I always make that distinction because I know a lot of sports fans are not readers, so sure. it's enough for them to get the scores 
off of, you know, Rogers or uh, off of sportsnet.ca or, or TSN because they're only interested in the summaries and just like real perfunctory um, accounts of, of, of games. And so, you know, that's really not what we do, but we do, you know, call people up and, and talk to them and, 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 and tell you interesting stories that you probably aren't going to read anywhere else. You would have read them in Sports Illustrated 30 years ago, right? Because, you know, once a week the magazine would arrive and, and somebody somewhere would be doing an interesting story and at the end of the April. I didn't know that and that was really interesting. Well, we, we do that and it's, there's a massive amount of copy. Oh my goodness, we've had this expansion into Britain that's been really successful because, of, you know, it's focused on uh, on soccer and, and I, I think that, you know, people around the world are reading our soccer coverage right now because they're fans of Man U and Man C and, and Chelsea all over the world, you know. So, um, yeah, it's been really, it's been a really interesting professional experience. I'm glad I did it. Um, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's been a really good place to work. And, uh, and if you care about, you know, like reading interesting stories about sports, it's worth trying. If, if you haven't tried that, there's all kinds of free trials available. Um, you don't have to, it's a sort of sports subscription service. Ultimately, they want you to pay for it. But, but if you want to test it out, it won't cost you anything. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, I hope, I hope people, you know, I hope there are some people out there that if they're on the fence, they, they'll give it a try. It's, I like it. What do you think? Like, I, I you love it. Yeah. You're, you're a sports guy, right? I, I like the fact that, um, you know, if I'm interested in hockey, uh, there's there's a lot of hockey. But if I'm interested in, like, I'm a massive Dodgers fan. So, you know, if there's right. the baseball content there for me, you know, I'm, I've started to become a Houston Rockets fan. Well, I can go find yeah. specific stuff. I, I, that's what I like. But then I like the the feature stuff. Like, I love the Mike Gartner story. I love the the one song per team that you put together yeah. because, you know, you, as as if people don't know, you're a massive music guy. So let's maybe chat about that. The the one song per team. Um, this This article came out recently, but this process started a long time ago for you. Yeah. Okay. So th- th- that is a long story. So um, I moved out to Calgary in 78 to cover sports. And then uh, one year later, uh, James Muratich, who I went to school with at the University of Western Ontario, uh, he was doing nighttime cops at the Peterborough Examiner, a big music guy. So we're, we became friends in school over a shared love of, of music. And and the, the job of the music critic came open at the Calgary Alberta, because uh, the, the guys that had it before Paul Heffer was going on a round-the-world trip. So Ruth Ann McKinnon, who was the entertainment editor, she's, she was the sister, by the way, of John McKinnon, the longtime sports columnist in Edmonton, right. hired James. And so James, James moves out from Peterborough to, uh, to Calgary. And, you know, we're making nickels and dimes, you know, like it's a paper that's not making a lot of money. So we, we're, we literally are making like minimum wages. And so, and it's the oil boom in Calgary. So we decided to get a townhouse together in the western side of, of town. And he's the music critic, and I'm, I'm the sports writer. And if you're the music critic in those days, you know, you got all the records free and you got to go to all of the concerts mm-hmm. for free. And often, you know, you got two tickets. So I was very frequently, you know, James is plus one at, at all of these great concerts. So we were together for two years. We had all these crazy parties. Every two months we would we would do parties. And so long before Nick Hornby ever came along and wrote High Fidelity, we would, <laughs> because we had all these records and we didn't want party goers to be touching our records. So we would make mixed tapes in like 1979 and program an entire party. So if you arrived at eight o'clock, you know, you could go and look on the wall because we'd have a, a printout and maybe we'd, you know, do a Beatles theme. So we'd start with Please Please Me. And then, then we'd go into the Stones and then the Birds and then so on and so forth. And we'd do eight hours. So there were three, we, there would always be like five 90 minute cassettes. And then, you know, at 3 30 in the morning, we'd throw everybody out. So we did that for two years, every two months for two years. And so, you know, James eventually, you know, married and moved out. And, and I, but I stuck with, you know, making 
mixed tapes. And so in 8081, you know, and, and themed tapes, right? So eighty eighty one, the Flames moved to town. And I, I, I did my first cassette of one song for an NHL city. It was 21 team NHL. And it was somewhere, you know, more difficult to find than others. And then gradually over 40 years, you know, the NHL has expanded to 31 teams. And of course, my list has changed constantly over time. And uh, we were doing a, a music-themed um, week. I think we started off with the best baseball songs of all time. And I said, well, I've had this project on the go for a while. And I and I just updated it. I had literally just updated it with a couple of, of new songs and was trying to search out something for Seattle. So I, I, I wrote this piece, and we really didn't know how it was going to do. But I, you know, I said, run it in my Friday notebook slot, and my, my regulars at least will read it. because you know, and, and it did really well. <laughs> it did, it actually, it did. It did extremely well. It's, I think it's the third most read story that I've had in, hmm. in calendar 2020. And I think that what it proved to the people that I work with is that there's an awful lot of people that have that shared interest, that care about sports and also care about music. And so, uh, so yeah, it was really fun. But I, I can tell you, like, we could we could spend an hour talking about themes. Like, my, you know, I could run down my ultimate summer collection for you, which <laughs> is also based on, and the, you know, those initial years that James and I were together, we would throw these... You know, we were always throw an anti-stampede party because uh, we weren't. Eventually, I, I, I grew to like country music, but in those days, I didn't have a lot of appetite for the country music at the time. And so, we would always do like a beach party theme mm-hmm. in Stampede when everybody. So when everybody else was wearing their cowboy boots, we'd be, you know, like we'd, we'd throw a bag, <laughs> throw a sandbag in the little patio of our townhouse there and get a little hibachi going and wear stupid lifeguard outfits <laughs> and listen to Jan and Dean. And I mean, it's yeah, some of the stuff we pulled was probably better off not, <laughs> but but really fun. And and so over the time, forty years now, my ultimate summer collection has expanded to include you know like a, a hundred best summer songs of all time. And and I've written about it. I've um, you know occasionally I've done a little bit of music writing in addition to sports writing. And uh, and uh, you know and I'm, I'm I'm actually hoping to be honest with you, convincing. Athletic to run my ultimate summer collection, you know, on the first day of summer. So if there's no sports going on and they're looking for content, I'm going to say, look, other pe- people read this. Mm-hmm. This has, you know, that one had something to do with sports. This has nothing to do with sports, but I want to see if they'll uh, if, if they'll publish it. And if not, you know, Dave Bedini, uh, uh, the, the author and, and uh, former lead guitarist of the Rio Statics, he has a website called Flapshot Diaries, and he occasionally lets me post my musical essays there. So we'll see. But uh, but yeah, it, it did. Like I said, it did pretty well, and and uh, you know, it sounds like you're a music guy too, right? So mm-hmm. that's uh, you know, there, there's there's an awful lot of us that I, are um, that care about both those things, right? Yeah, I, I was listening to when I was reading that last night. I was listening to I, I love Sirius XMU, the station. That's uh, it's very uh, like a college radio station, and just uh, just very cool songs that I don't know about because I can go into my iTunes and listen to all the songs I know, but I like to learn yeah. new music. So I was listening to that. And then when I got to Winnipeg and you were talking about the Neil's young song Thrasher. So I, I threw that on and, and I had to listen to that. Now uh, I'm a guy that um, I, I listen to music as I'm, um, you know, like a show prep or, you know, when I used to, I used to do nine to midnight. So I would come home at midnight, start working on the next mm-hmm. day's show while listening to music. Do you listen to music when you write? No, I don't. And and that is the, like, so what I'll do is when I get up in the morning, um, you know, I, I have like a half an hour ritual at my computer where I'm checking emails, where I'm reaching out to people. And so I will definitely have music on during that period of time. But what I find is that, um, one, 
you know, a lot of times before you write, if you've done an interview, you have to transcribe the interview. So obviously you can't transcribe yeah. an interview and listen to music at the <laughs> same time. But when I actually sit down and, and want to write, like, you know, I was working on, you know, before we came on and did this show today, uh, you know, I was roughing in my Friday notes column and, and I turned the music off for that because I, I need to concentrate. And I, you know, I have it in my head. And if I, you know, if I have the thread in my head, and, and music comes in there, the music pushes the thread out of my sure. head. And, uh, and then, so I can't follow it. So, so I have music on in my house constantly, uh, but not when I'm writing and not when I'm transcribing tape, just about all the other times. Um, if you came into my house, you would have music on it. And, and I've got music everywhere. Like I still have an old fashioned stereo. Like, a you know, I have a, an amp and I've got a tape deck and I've got a, you know, two CD players and a Denon turntable that I mm-hmm. bought in 1986 that still is immaculate. So, uh, so yeah, there's uh, there, there's lots of music options, and uh, I think I still own nine working iPods. I was trying to <laughs> calculate because I'm a big iPod guy. I, I walk and I run, and uh, and I know you can do it with your phone. To me, the phone is too heavy. I've got iPods, four iPod shuffles. I got two Nanos. I've got a Classic, and then whatever that one that came out that looks like an iPhone but isn't an iPhone. I have one of those too. I can't remember what they called it. And believe me, when they discontinued iPods, it was a sad day in my household. <laughs> uh, in fact, when my daughter was home at Christmas. She said, "Dad, can I take one of those shuffles?" Because she's a runner, and her shuffle had given up the ghost. So I gave up one of my precious stash of iPod shuffles to my daughter over Christmas so that she could run with it. It was like a Stick it of like a chiclet chewing gum. You know they're fantastic, mm-hmm. and they, they take up no space. And then you can, you know, you can change the songs on your on your running playlist all the time. So yeah, I think you know, like you know, music consumption patterns, as you say, have changed. You know, and I'm not like a big Spotify guy. I, you know, I I, I have Spotify and I listen to it occasionally, but I've got I've got so much money invested in my records and my CDs that um, you know. Like uh, once a month, I'll go downstairs and I'll rotate, you know, a hundred new CDs upstairs and then bring the ones that I've been listening to downstairs. And, you know, just two weeks ago, I stumbled across 10 that I hadn't listened to probably in five years, you know, so you put it on and it just sounds fresh. So, um, yeah, I, I, I'd have more of a ten- tendency or temptation to, to listen to music that you, is available online if I didn't have such a vast mm-hmm. collection of my own that uh, that I've that I've been ignoring because life is too busy. And the one thing about this sort of slowing of things is that there is a little bit more time for uh, for music, and I'm taking advantage of it. Yeah, no doubt. There was music playing in my house all the time when I grew up. Like my parents were big country fans; they would leave the radio on all the time. Like I don't know if it was to prov- yeah. if a burglar walked in and he thought people would be home or what it was, but and, and I've been getting into that with the you know the new. Uh, you know, the, the hello Google or the uh, Alexa or whatever, mm-hmm. you could just tell it to play uh, certain musics. It's, it's so easy. And I just love it in the background and, and playlists have become a lot easier to make than when you first started them with, right. you know, a record and a cassette tape. So what's your playlist? Like, I, I know in your article, you talk about how you do like a playlist. I don't know how you narrow it down to 20 songs uh, each year, but like, are you constantly hearing a song and then just adding it to a playlist and then you go through and, and put that together or what's your playlist method? making method okay well so uh, a lot of it is so i have a couple two two separate things one is i i do do an annual best of so so starting again in the days of, of cassettes at the end of every year up until about 1986 i would do uh, my my 20 favorite songs for the year and then i would record a cassette uh, of, of all those songs again there's no download you, you, you bought the record mm-hmm. and then you'd 
you know, and so you create these things and then you can play in your own homemade cassette in the car and there, there would be your, I stopped in 1986. I wasn't listening to the radio as much. Um, children started to come. And so I kind of lost, I, I, you know, I, I didn't do it until 2003. So I'm covering the Stanley Cup final, the playoffs. 2003 was the year that the Ducks got to the final and we were staying in one of those Hilton hotels close by the arena there and they were piping music through there. So I hadn't really been paying as close attention. You know, I would buy albums by my favorites. Like I still, you know, I got Mark Knopfler, a new album would come out, I'd buy it. If if there was something from the Pretenders, I'd buy it. You know, the, the, the artists that I cared about, I would just buy their records, but I was actually, you know, quite unseen just on, on reputation. And I'm listening to all of this music and, and it was like, I, I was enjoying it. You know, Michelle Brandt, never heard of her, but liked it. You know, Fleetwood Mac, I think that peacekeeper out at the time. So I thought to myself, I need to go back to doing this. So I did, you know, and, and every year since 2003, at the end of the year, I produced a, my 20 favorite songs of the year. And, and, and what you're talking about is, is exactly what I do. So, you know, early in 2020, I haven't heard a lot of new things that I've liked. The new Ron Sexsmith is out. I've, I've listened to it a handful of times. I know there's going to be at least one track off of that, uh, uh, that that will be on it. Uh, Jimmy Buffett has a new album coming out at the end of the month. Uh, you know, listen to a few of the, the tracks, just samples of it. It looks pretty good. But but over the course of twelve months, I will have you know listened to you know a, a bunch of new music, and and eventually you know around December first, I you know I pair the list down to to twenty. It's an evolving thing. Like you know, if it's if I were to send you a playlist for. For you know, 2018, you know, it, it might look different on my computer now because I stumbled across something later. But I have, yeah, I'm, I'm staring at my computer right now. I, you know, every year it, I have, you know, a one to twenty ranking from 2003 on, and then all of the I've gone back and, and recreated playlists for every year from 19, let's see, 1961 straight through to yeah to the present. So. Give me a year and I can tell you what the number one song of that year was. No. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, it's, it's amazing. I, I, I've been getting into playlists a little bit more, but, uh, I, I find I just like, Oh, I like this whole album. So I put, I do like a playlist of one artist and they need to vary it up a little bit. Um, and, and, right. and, and, and let's, let's wrap with this. Cause I've taken way too much of your time, but you're a big music guy. You've seen a lot of concerts. Do you have a favorite live venue? Mm, favorite live venue? Well, that's, you know, again, it depends on, uh, on, it depends on a lot of things. I mean, Matthew Hall in Toronto, you know, Scott Gordon likes it there, uh, you know, a million times. Um, great concert hall. Jack Singer here in Calgary is terrific. Uh, before they built the Saddle Dome, uh, James and I used to go up to Edmonton. I saw, you know, Fleetwood Mac, I think it was touring in support of Tusk. The very first ABBA concert in North America was at Northlands. I was at that. Um, you know, obviously I like smaller venues better than, 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 than the large ones. Uh, some of the best concerts I ever saw were in the summer, you know, uh, in Toronto at the Molson Amphitheater there. Um, I did do, uh, uh, when I turned 60, I, I wrote a 10,000 word essay on my 60 favorite songs in 60 years. And, uh, so, you know, you can read it on Slapshot Diaries. That's Dave Bedini's website. And, um, you know, it's, it's hard to narrow it down because, uh, uh, you know, I think I settled for a John Fogarty concert at the um, Molson Amphitheater because it was the year he turned 64 and I think 12 or 13 songs in, he came on solo acoustic and covered When I'm 64 by the Beatles. And it was wow. just such a charming thing. It was just so charming. And uh, I've seen him at the Beacon. I've seen Fogarty at the Beacon in New York, which is a fabulous venue. 
saw Levon Helm there with Phoebe Snow once, you know, and then within 12 months, both of them had passed away. Um, you know, like some of those clubs in, in, in Los Angeles are really fun to go to. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, I, I don't have a particular favorite, uh, you know, but sometimes being able to see like Chrissy Hyde at the Pantages in, in LA is pretty great. Right? So those types of smaller venues are the ones that I prefer. And funny, I was having this conversation with, with Rob Kerr, former radio host in, in, in Calgary, about whether I've seen my last major stadium show because of this whole coronavirus thing. You know, I, I mean, I've got a picture on the on one of these um, websites of, of my son and I, you know, standing basically right beside Bruce Springsteen and this mob of people during a, a show that he put on in Toronto, you know, many, many years ago and thinking, you know, would I ever do that again? Would I ever want to be in that close proximity to 70,000 other Springsteen fans? I don't know. Uh, the answer is probably not. Like, I, I don't know if I'll ever go to a major arena show again or a major stadium show again. It just depends on how, how everything plays out in, in the next little while in terms of public safety. But, um, yeah, it's going to be, uh, it's going to be an interesting evolving time for that industry, for the sports industry, um, you know, a real crossroads. And, you know, and, and again, at this late stage of my life, you know, I'm very thankful to, you know, have been able to, to see all these great artists and to see all these great games over the years. It's really, it's been, been pretty great. Well, you're right. Uh, I, I went to like way back when the Lollapalooza festival in 1994 and like, I, oh, yeah. I don't think I would go in a mosh pit again. Like I don't, first of all, I'm, I'm too old to go in a mosh pit, but you know, I, I yeah, wouldn't, yeah. I wouldn't want to go into that. And, and, and you're right about small venues. I mean, I saw Neil Young at the Wells Fargo theater in Denver one time. And, um, mm-hmm. you know, I saw back here in the, in the wind spear and, and, and it just makes right. It's just so awesome. Um, I, I would, yeah. I think everybody would rather see a, a twenty five hundred uh, seat arena rather than a, an eighteen thousand seat arena, right? It's just more intimate. Sure. Yeah. Well, last year, you know, Roseanne Cash, uh, you know, played a show here at Jack Singer, and I just mm-hmm. bought a single ticket and sat in the eleventh, the eleventh row, and she was great. You yeah. know, and it was the acoustics are fantastic, the seats are comfortable. You have, you know, you're close enough to the stage where you know that you you feel like you're in, 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 in a, in a venue that's, you know, that, that's close by. I remember seeing Dave Alvin, uh, in, in, at the Ironweed here in, in, in Calgary, which is a bar, right? Yeah. So there's Dave Alvin, you know, from the blasters and, and, you know, and then, you know, I mean, he's literally 15 feet away, you know, singing, you know, Ab- Abilene. It's just, it was, wow. It's amazing. Right. So anyway, yeah, that's a better way of doing this. Sure. It's, so, uh... <laughs> It's it's an amazing uh, live music and and live sports are uh, two things that I miss right now uh, a whole lot. But this has been such a fun conversation, Eric. Thank you so much for giving me uh, some time. As I said, I was a uh, I was and am still a, a big fan of uh, of your writing, and uh, I look forward to uh, reading about the the playoffs uh, whenever we get to them, whether that's this year or next year. Thanks so much for your time. Okay, my pleasure. I just thank you. and more podcast with Dean Millard. Spending your time here with me And I want to spend all my time with you
That is the sweet sounds of Sweet Bejesus from their debut album, Policeman's Creek, that was Falling Fast, the official band of Sports and More, the podcast. We appreciate them for allowing us to use their great tunes. You can find their debut album at uh, Apple Music, Policeman's Creek from Sweet Bejesus. And so uh, big thanks to Eric Dehatchik of The Athletic. Uh, such a, a long and wide-ranging conversation, but... Uh, as I mentioned, I've, I've been a fan of his for a long time, and I had a lot of things I wanted to pick his brain about. And that leads us into the ultimate franchise fantasy sports poll question, uh, which is, what is more important to you as an NHL fan? Finishing this season and handing out a Stanley Cup or an uninterrupted season starting in October? So the results so far, 58% are in favor of an uninterrupted next season as opposed to finishing this season. That's where I kind of fall into. I would rather them just uh, get next year in order and um, unfortunately uh, just do away with this year. As much as that uh, it pains me to say it, I just want people to be safe and I want us to be able to enjoy sports like we used to and maybe we're never going to be able to be like that, but I want... I just don't want anything rushed back, and I really don't want uh, to see players having to play that much hockey compacted into a short schedule. So I would vote for an uninterrupted season starting in October. That's what 58% of the people are voting. At Duck Millard on Twitter, you can have your say there, and you can check out how to get in the game where you own the game with the Ultimate Franchise Fantasy Sports at www.uffsports.com. Thank you so much to Eric DeHatchik and thank you to you, uh, the listeners, for downloading this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, uh, please subscribe and leave us a review. It's uh, really important to help us make sure we're doing the right things for you, the listener. And if you'd like to be a part of a show as an advertiser, please email me sportsandmorepod at gmail.com. That is sportsandmorepod at gmail.com. Dot com. As we go, here's another one from Sweet Bejesus, their debut album, Policeman's Creek. This is Cameron. Playtime is over. Cameron used to sing a lot, but he stopped when his dad yelled, Shut up. the gas when his girlfriend yelled slow down Cameron used to read but he closed the sleeve when his friend yelled hey geek Cameron's changed Cameron's ashamed Yeah. Okay.